This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hi, listeners. I'm Vanessa Richardson, host of the podcast Serial Killers. Like many of you, I'm fascinated by the darker side of humanity. What causes someone to develop such deadly desires and why they decide to act on them? For the past six years, I've been able to explore these curiosities weekly, tapping into the mental states of the world's most notorious killers, examining their backgrounds and habits, searching for answers. If you haven't had a chance to check out our show, there's truly no better time to dive in. With hundreds of episodes to binge and new ones released weekly, Serial Killers is the perfect podcast for any avid true crime fan. Follow Serial Killers on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Sometime in the early 80s, REO Speedwagon's airplane made an unannounced middle-of-the-night landing. This is my friend Kyle McLaughlin, the star of Twin Peaks. And he's telling me about how he discovered a real-life Twin Peaks in rural North Carolina, not far from where he filmed Blue Velvet. What was on the plane was copious amounts of drugs coming in from South America. Supposedly, Pablo Escobar went looking for other spots, quiet, out-of-the-way places to bring in his cocaine. My name is Joshua Davis, and I'm an investigative reporter. Kyle and I talk all the time about the strange things we come across, but nothing was quite as strange as what we found in Varnumtown, North Carolina. There's crooked cops, brother against brother. Everyone's got a story to tell, but does the truth even exist? Welcome to Varnumtown. Varnumtown is available wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey everybody, welcome to the show. Welcome to Human Monsters, and we're doing something a little different today. Uh, normally, I don't do a banter-based format, but I have the hosts of Crawl Space Podcast on the show today. Uh, welcome, Lance, and welcome. I'm sorry, what was, what was your name? Uh, Tim. Sorry, I should have updated my uh, Zoom screen here. <laughs> oh, that's all right. Um, so, what I'm going to do first, I'm just going to ask you uh, if you could describe your show. Yeah, thanks for having us on. Uh, totally. The uh, show that you're referencing there, uh, Crawl Space, was a show that Tim and I started. Um, how many years after we had Missing More Murray going? I want to say about a year and a half. Yeah, about a year and a half after we had started Missing More Murray. And we wanted to do something that focused on cold cases, as well as bringing on other people that can speak professionally about those cold, cold cases, missing person cases, 
uh, anything that was like true crime related that gave us a little bit more freedom to explore the psychology behind why people do what they do. Also have like authors on the chance to have other podcasters on, you know, the peers in our industry. So uh, Crawl Space was the title that we came up with. I'm pretty sure simultaneously when we were going over titles. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. The is designed to make you uncomfortable, right? I think that was kind of what we wanted to get out of it. Everything you said and with the title, something, uh, you know, we wanted the, our conversations to get uncomfortable. Well, at this point, whenever I think of crawl spaces, I think of John Wayne Gacy's house because that's where he buried all those bodies. Yeah, yeah. totally. And <laughs> anytime people are talking about John Wayne Gacy, they end up giving us free plugs because they always say in the crawl space, <laughs> well, crawl space, yeah, yeah. crawl space. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think when we were talking about it, we we're like, what's on, what's like the a word that could describe like your, you know, it's kind of you're digging in, you're looking for something. It's like dark, it's uncomfortable. And, and you, you're trying to find stuff and pull, you know, like you're trying to get like, because we're thinking like the conversations, typically the conversations we have span like 45 minutes to an hour. And some of them are lighter, but some of them, yeah, we do get a little bit deeper than than um, the guest is anticipating. So it does get a little bit more uncomfortable. Yeah. And I think I, I'm pretty sure I was like pulled over on the side of the road, going to like a site inspection for a tent or something when we were talking about it. And uh, yeah, it came out at the same time. Yeah, I've been watching uh, Amazon Prime. They have all of the old uh, episodes of Unsolved Mysteries, the ones with Robert Stack. And I thought the Crawl Space guys must have watched that show back in the day. Oh, for sure. Of course. Yeah. Legend. Robert oh, Stack yeah. and that show. Yeah. Okay, so we're going to get into this case um, of uh, Sheila Shepard, and this is a classic cold case. And uh, it's funny because I was thinking about it. So she was found deceased by her uncle on uh, November 25th, 1980. So I don't know how he knew she would be dead or what, but uh, they always look at uh, next of kin when these things happen. And... Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, yeah. So what, what do you guys uh, know about this case so far? Did you cover this in an episode? We covered it in a series um, on Crawl Space and on Missing, which is one of our other podcasts. Uh, we went a little bit further with it on Missing. Um, but yeah, we actually had a great opportunity to speak with the investigators, the current Saratoga Springs Police Department investigators, Matt Callahan or uh, Matt Wilson and Chris Callahan, as well as um, one of the original investigators, Tom Mitchell, um, who's now retired, and uh, Sheila's aunt Terry. So we we spoke with all of them for this series, and we learned a lot of information. Um, and unfortunately, uh, not all of it is is out there easily Googleable, you know. So we want to kind of try to talk about this case as much as possible because it has like uh, things about it. I think that would make true crime people, like the true crime community, really interested in trying to figure out uh, who did it, you know. Uh, frankly, and so. But but that hasn't happened yet, you know, unfortunately, um, for whatever reason. I think Saratoga Springs is kind of a small town. Maybe that's one reason. Um, but it is a, it definitely is an interesting case. Yeah, and in looking into it, it occurred to me that 
if you just had, if you, if you're going through an acrimonious divorce, probably the worst thing that could happen is your ex-wife being murdered because you're going to be suspect number one. If everyone remembers that you weren't getting along, uh, everything came to an end in a very, uh, you know, heated kind of aggressive sort of way with lots of fighting. Um, they're going to point, everyone's going to point the finger at you. And certainly her husband was a suspect, wasn't he? Yeah, he was looked at um, and interviewed and they tracked down his alibi. And uh, based on the investigators we spoke to from the police department, they, I, I would say, have all but cleared him of um, any responsibility in Sheila's case. They they said that it's a, a very good alibi. Um, uh, I know Sheila's family kind of feels a little differently, though. I think this guy, Richard... Um, acted oddly his behavior was bizarre after uh sheila's murder and um you know maybe that's pretty normal honestly i don't know um but some of the details didn't don't really seem normal don't really seem like things i've heard before well you know i mean death is something that i don't know if most people are ever really prepared for and people can react to it in strange ways um you know like i like one thing that happens to a lot of families, like when a parent dies is sometimes that can tear apart a family. Um, and some people get very entitled when it comes to the legacy and all that sort of thing. Um, so yeah, I guess people, yeah, maybe it was just because of the death you, when it, if it, when you're not prepared for it, that can bring out strange behavior for sure. Yeah. Um, I don't know if we were ever told about the alibi, like what they said he was specifically doing other than he was seen. What was it? You've seen at a bar. The bartender confirmed that he was at the bar. Yeah. Um, I, I believe uh, several people, I think even there was like a band playing at the bar. And I want to say the right. like he even spoke with the band that night. Uh, but the, I think the problem with it is that it's not definite what time or, or night Sheila was killed. It's believed that they have that info uh, from the medical examiner, but um I think there's just some uncertain, some potential uncertainty about her timeline. Yeah. And when we were talking with Terry, Sheila's aunt, when we went to Saratoga and the detectives were sitting there with us, she had told us without hesitation when we asked, who do you think the number one suspect is or how many suspects do you think there are? She just held up one finger and she was like, one, it's it's him. Like she is, there'll be no dissuading her. Uh, is it dissuading or persuading? Dissuade. There'll be no convincing her otherwise. Yeah. And unfortunately, sometimes that's something that you can encounter in police uh, with judges, with prosecutors. Uh, and, uh, you know, unfortunately, sometimes in certain cases where uh, medical problems could enter into somebody dying, they just won't hear of it. Uh, so, I mean, these kind of biases can certainly occur. Um, and I think whoever killed her, you know, I think <laughs> if there's a downside to true crime media that are being around for so long, it's that uh, serial killers are very, um, they're very schooled on how to get away with these things now. They realize don't kill anyone you know, uh, make sure you don't leave any DNA behind. Uh, you know, 
and there are serial killers who have said that you know they read about all kinds of serial killers and learned from them btk dennis raider he was a he was a fan of serial killers and he wanted to be a serial killer like those were his rock star idols for him and as, so i would say so if, if i had to posit a theory on this case it's probably a guy who didn't know her because that seemed because uh there's so many fewer breadcrumbs when it comes to that sort of thing. Well, uh, let me push back a little bit. Mm -hmm. The investigators believe that Sheila definitely knew her killer um, because there was no sign of forced entry. And uh, also I think the, there was a sheet covering her face, covering her whole body actually. And I know that that's one one thing that uh, investigators will look to for um, some relationship. I don't know if there's some shame associated uh, with that. And that's why they do that. I'm not quite sure, but, uh, but that is what I've heard. So, so I, I, the, the investigators were, were looking into the case as if this was someone who Sheila knew she had only been back in town for 10 days though, yeah. which kind of, you know, lim I would say probably limits the amount of people she came across during that time. It's, it's she, probably a short term relationship, maybe. Maybe yeah. she just met him very recently and he probably lied about, probably even about his name. A lot of these guys just, they sell themselves entirely uh, on false lives. And so that might have been what he did as well. That's possible. The, yeah. The strangest element to this, one of the strangest, element to this is that she was stabbed in her stomach right below her navel post-mortem oh yeah yeah so i mean yeah that's there was definitely personal animus behind this uh was, was she sexually assaulted she was naked on the bed tied with her hands and feet to the uh bed posts but there was no sign of any sexual assault and there was no sign of any struggle from her hands being tied or her wrists being tied and her ankles being tied. Yeah. Well, I mean, when you get into the psychology of these guys, clearly this is someone who hates women and he probably also has a low self-esteem or an inferiority complex. And he wanted to have power over a woman who couldn't fight back. Uh, funny because uh, there was some good timing here because the, there was a special on unsolved mysteries about what they call diabolical minds, the psychopaths. And uh, that power is a, a motif in their lives. It's, it was often robbed of them as children. One extreme example they cited was Adolf Hitler. His father was very abusive. And as adults, there is this obsession with having power over other people. So um, it sounds like that probably had a lot to do with the motive anyway. He wanted to put a woman in a position where she was completely powerless. Yeah, I, it's definitely possible. I think some of those some of those things you said ring true. Um, but but she was tied up afterwards, right? I mean, yeah, and there were no. It says there was no signs of robbery as well. So, right. So that right. yeah, there was no financial motive either. It was just. He just wanted to hurt this woman. And and then when you consider the indignities to her corpse as well, again, that's more power. It's more ownership. Like, you know, you didn't have the chance to deny me. And even in death, 
uh, you belong to me. You know, it's not quite as extreme as Jeffrey Dahmer, but it's, it's the same trajectory anyway. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. Well, the official cause of death for her was asphyxiation. Yeah. Yeah. So, so she, strangulation or do you think it was something else or something else like suffocation? A piece of her blouse was um, was shoved into her mouth. Oh, yeah, yeah. So they just probably covered her mouth and nose and just, yeah, she just. Yeah, as far as we know. Yeah, it is. It is a an odd cause of death uh, to me, you know. Yeah, it almost seems like every time you think about it, it almost seems like this is a accidental death. And then you start thinking about some of the other details. You always keep coming back to there was no signs of struggle on her hands and the knife in her stomach after she was after she had passed. So what does that what does that mean? The killer did accidentally killed her and then made it look like it was a murder. But then if he accidentally killed her, why would you why wouldn't you just leave? You know, now you're trying to make it look like it's something it wasn't. Or so you're just trying to confuse the situation. Well, I mean, it certainly wasn't anything like a contract killing because those are typically uh, committed with guns and guns are so, I mean, it's, it's almost impersonal because it's just, you're not making contact with the body. This guy wanted to savor every last moment of seeing her struggle, seeing her suffer. Um, so yeah, again, this is, this is someone who has a pathological need to snuff out women and, and kill them. Um, and so it was probably, you know, I mean, most murderers are men and uh, yeah, this is probably again, a, a guy who has a, a thing against women and uh, moving along. So, so it says that he took some photographs from her apartment so there, there may have been some kind of a sexual motive, but he um, it's interesting that he would maybe he has like a collection of photos of his victims that are like trophies because a lot of serial killers like to keep trophies. That was kind of what we thought. Um, and there was some um, some conflict between the investigators, um, sort of the newer school approach of investigators, Callahan and Wilson versus original investigator Mitchell. So we, we kind of got a few different, uh, pieces of info out of, out of, um, each, I guess, I think Callahan and Wilson were more readily open to the idea that those photos were stolen, um, by the killer, um, Tom Mitchell did not say as much. In fact, he didn't really want to talk about them at all. So that leads me to think that that probably is what happened, that they were stolen. Um, but uh, we we can't be 100% sure that they were taken by the killer. But if you're asking my opinion, I do think that's what happened. Yeah, I mean, there, there's also the possibility she could have just, you know, given them away to someone that she knew. So that, I mean, that's also possible as well. It is, but... The photos were of Sheila in the time that she had spent in Colorado and in California just before she arrived back in Saratoga Springs. And I guess, uh, and I and I got this information, we got this information from Sheila's aunt, Terry, uh, who spoke with Sheila's mom after she was murdered. Sheila's mom told Terry that she was on the phone with Sheila and was talking about those photos, uh, the ones that that ended up going missing so she was excited about them um that she had them i think she must have just 
recently gotten them developed. So yeah, I don't, I don't think she, uh, I, I think she cherished those photos, honestly. And did the, uh, I mean, I mean, I imagine the police swept the place for DNA. Did they find anything from the killer? Any hairs, anything like that? That is a good question because this was in 1980. Right? Oh yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah. If they have any evidence right now with the DNA technology that we have, it's nothing's being done because it's still waiting in the queue. That's the answer. I think we're still getting is that it's just hasn't been, it must be the, it just hasn't been moved up the, up the uh, chain of priorities. Well, yeah, yeah, I guess since it's a cold case, I guess that's probably why, right? Yeah. Yeah. We, there's some ambiguity there. I, I'm not sure how much of the killer's DNA they have. You know, I, I, I'm sure they have samples. Um, I know that there were samples of, of some items sent to the state lab. Uh, we don't know what they were. Um, we don't really know if the killer's DNA was on that or how good or bad the samples were. Um, so it unfortunately seems like this case is going to have to be worked on without DNA. Um, as of right now, I think that's probably the, uh, the only way forward um, that, that we're led to believe. Uh, we do know there are prints, you know, they definitely printed um, the, the apartment. So hopefully, uh, hopefully something there could turn up, but you know, they, they've, they've fingerprinted suspects in the past, people that they've interviewed and uh, nothing has matched uh, as, as of now. Yeah, and the, the process of analyzing DNA, I mean, it used to be incredibly slow. Like, I mean, they would have backlogs of, for, of years. I don't know if it's gotten faster now. Yeah, um, we we know the, this lab in Austin, Texas called Othram Labs, and you can find out information about them at dnasolves.com. They're amazing. Uh, they and they can turn DNA around in a matter of a couple of weeks or or even less probably. Uh, they they have an investigative team there as well um, to do some of that genetic work. Uh, so that's pretty. Uh, it's a great lab. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Hey kids, I'd like to introduce you to a new podcast you're going to love. On behalf of myself, Morgan Rector, of one of the most horrific true crime podcasts, Human Monsters, I'd like to ask you this question. Do you like to travel? Do you like picturesque locations and getting away from it all? Fun fact, there is a morgue on every cruise ship. After all, People die everywhere. Why wouldn't they die on a cruise ship in the Bahamas? Well, this new podcast has all that and murder. Murder. It's called Slaycation, and it's a darkly humorous look at murders 
and mysterious deaths that took place on vacation. Hosted by true crime fanatic, her comedy writer husband, and his TV producing partner, Slaycation brings a unique perspective to chilling, thrilling, and what-the-fuck stories of vacations gone horribly wrong. From the twisted tale of Harold and Tony Henthorne, whose romantic anniversary in the Rocky Mountains ended with one of them falling off a cliff, to Angelica and Vincent, two recently engaged lovebirds whose Hudson Valley kayaking adventure ended underwater, each episode of Slaycation will have you asking, accident or murder? But it's not just the stories that'll intrigue you. It's the discussion between a longtime married couple and business partners who happen to be Emmy-nominated TV producers. Each episode of Slaycation also includes humor, takeaway, and travel tips that will keep your next vacation from being your last. If you're ready to pack your body bags, Slaycation is available on all major podcast platforms. Search for Slaycation on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Matt Harris. Seton Tucker and I host the podcast Impact of Influence, which for two years covered in depth Alec Murdoch, who was eventually convicted in 2023 of murdering his wife Maggie and son Paul. That story continues to evolve, and we will cover that. Plus, we will tell you stories of other true crime events that have happened in the South. Please join us on Impact of Influence. And give us a follow on the Impact of Influence Facebook page. Um, but they, they work only with law enforcement. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Uh, and in a case like this, uh, already has the items that have been submitted to the state lab. So I don't think they're able to really pull them out and send them to, uh, to author them, unfortunately. And we don't even know how the crime scene was handled during the investigation, like immediately afterward, because we were looking at the photos that they took. The detectives allowed us to look at the case file and the photos and, it just it it just looked like what you would imagine 1980s like crime movie to or you know like the the movie of the week where they show up at the crime scene and they're smoking and it takes the jacket off it hangs it on the chair and i mean that's what the pictures showed <laughs> and yeah. uh, oh really yeah, yeah so it, it's like who knows who knows how how much contamination was done during that time just not being aware of what you're doing yeah you know sometimes faulty police work and definitely botch up an investigation and uh, but on the other hand you know it's investigation is a difficult thing it's it's a science and with without evidence you can't bust anybody and it can take years some as i said some killers are very methodical 
They plan very well. They're not like the Crips and the Bloods who shoot people out in the street. Uh, they've got it all worked out. And this guy must have clearly gained this girl's trust so that she would take him up to his her apartment. So, I mean, that that's the thing about psychopaths and sociopaths. They're very good at charming people and in adopting a, a, an artificial facade because they don't fear anyone. They don't fear the consequences. They're not afraid of being caught in a lie. So that's pro that was probably a big part of it as well. This one, if this is the same person who killed Sheila, they were pretty brazen in that the theory is they stole flowers from the gravesite. So that's just if. That's just oh, if. Yeah. So flowers were stolen from the gravesite. When we were there with Terry and the detectives, Terry had mentioned that they were stolen two or three times, I think she said. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. From the gravesite. And that would be a pretty brazen thing to do if it was the killer. Interesting thing about the gravesite is that it was in the last row or second to last row of the cemetery. So from the street, you're not looking in and seeing Sheila Shepard's standing tombstone. It was just a plate on the on yeah. the ground as well. And it doesn't even say Shepherd. It says doesn't her, even say Shepherd, right? Her maiden really? name. Yeah, oh, wow. yeah. Well, serial yeah, killers—they they like to go back and and inspect their crimes, and so that's maybe that's maybe the closest thing he's had to actually, so he can go back and look at the tombstone and think, "This is my handiwork." Yeah, I mean that could be a possibility. It's definitely definitely crossed our minds. Um, I would like to hear about what you think about that. Well, I mean, you know, Ted Bundy was notorious for that. He went back and put makeup on their faces and uh, performed acts of necrophilia. Um, and some of them don't always go that far, but they like to go back. And I think Gary Ridgway, the Green River killer, might have done these things. Oh, yeah, yeah. He would go back to the corpses. So, yeah, this... I mean, unless it's some cheapskate who doesn't want to buy flowers, but I don't, I think most people are decent enough not to do that. So that this could be someone who's trying to send a message. Do you know if they ever conducted surveillance on her grave to see if someone was coming along or? No. So this was um, something that came about during our uh, interviews with Terry and uh, the investigators. Um, this information was never passed to original investigator Mitchell, uh, says Tom. Um, but he did say that that's a bit unnerving, I think, or, or something of that effect um, about the flowers. He wondered how often that happened, you know, uh, even posited if they would ask a maintenance man at that uh, cemetery to see if that's a common occurrence. Um, but yeah, he was definitely bothered by that. And I think it seemed like he wished he had heard that um, when it happened. Um, Terry, I think, said like, you know, she something to the effect of, this was such a crazy time. Like, you know, I don't know if we, if we forgot to tell the investigators that, that that's probably why, you know? Yeah. Vandalism does sometimes go on in cemeteries. Like I just covered this case. Do you remember uh, this boy named Ryan white in the eighties? He had AIDS and he became yeah, kind of a poster boy for it. Wasn't well, that he, one with Elton John? Yeah. Yeah. He sang yeah. his funeral. And uh, after a year after he died, people vandalized his grave 
out of like homophobia, even though they knew by then that it wasn't a gay disease. So not everyone respects has respect for the dead. So, so yeah, I can see this guy doing something that as diabolical as removing the flowers. Um, I don't was, know. I mean, if you were trying to do something diabolical and what's the purpose of just removing the flowers, why wouldn't you deface the, 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 the nameplate? Yeah, that is odd. Yeah. Maybe because it's something that you can repeat like, and I'm just going back to what Morgan yeah. said earlier about the killer sort of exerting some kind of control over Sheila uh, first when he killed her, uh, then when he tied her up. Well, I, I guess he probably um, took her clothes off and, and folded them up and put them uh, neatly on the floor um, and then tied her up. And And I mean, all this, I think you're right in that spending any time with her after this person killed her um, is a sign of, you know, needing some kind of control, I think. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and then the, the photos you, you're trying to relive that, right. You maybe, and this is just my opinion. She probably showed this person the photos in the apartment that night. And I would bet that that person took them. This is, again, this is my opinion. I would bet that person took them uh, to sort of relive that moment. Yeah, it's interesting. I'm looking at a quote here. So there was this one guy who said, um, support the fact. So positioning of the shoes in Sheila's apartment, uh, possibly by the killer, supports the fact that this is not a violent crime scene. It's methodical to a degree. So I guess, so yeah, to them, it didn't have the classic hallmarks of a crime scene. So he killed her, but he, there was no blood, right? That's correct. And there was yeah. no gore. Right. And that and that was his point. He was, he said that he had investigated some other murders and there's blood on the walls and on the floor and things like that and he was like this you know was completely different. So what uh so do you know a lot about the autopsy? Uh you you mentioned that they know she died from asphyxiation. Was that were they 100% on that or Yes. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Because uh, and then otherwise, uh, she didn't have any intoxicants in her system or anything like that. Or actually, she she was intoxicated. Um, I believe she had a she had like a uh, a blood alcohol level. You know, I don't. She wasn't driving or anything that that night, but I believe she had a blood blood alcohol level um, 0.25. So that's you know, legally intoxicated. Oh yeah. They, yeah. That's pretty high. Yeah. So did they um, interview any known sex offenders in the area? I don't know if they had the sex offender registry at the time, but. Uh... Um, good question. Um, I, I would, I would say so. I don't know. I know, I know they, they interviewed a lot of people, a lot of people in her life at that time, she was going to a, a school. She had signed up for a secretary class that was just down the street from her. So a lot of her life um, at that time involved walking from her um, apartment to her school, to the bars downtown and maybe to her mom's house too, or at least to a laundromat where she met her mom, I, I believe. Um, so, yeah, I'm not sure if they, if they interviewed, uh, known sex offenders, but I would bet they uh, they they attempted that. Yeah. But speaking of the sex offender registry, is it is it just 
pedophiles who are in that, or do they also include men who have offended against women, adult females? I don't really know. That's a great question. Um, I think that's, that's every kind of sex offense um, possible, even, you know, to probably animals, you know? Yeah. I, I think, I think you're right. I think, because every time we run one of those background checks, it listed as registered sex offender or red. I think it says registered sexual offender. Yeah. So, and it says that she had a broken fingernail, um, but that could have been, you know, a random thing from her everyday life. Mm-hmm. Women have broken fingernails. So it's probably not indicative of a struggle. I'm thinking if, if perhaps she had been fighting back, she probably would have had more than one broken fingernail. That's what I'm thinking anyway. Yeah. And I think there would have been some signs of that in her apartment. Her apartment wasn't in a condition that would be suggestive of any sort of struggle. In fact, like Tim had mentioned, things were placed neatly. Her shoes were placed neatly side by side in the clothing. And even the way her body was found with the sheet covering her face, it, it almost feels like if she knew this person briefly, maybe from, you know, a a brief encounter at the bar and they go back to her place. And then the unintentional, intentional murder happens. Well, I mean, this is a total shot in the dark, but I'm thinking maybe, maybe they were going to have sex. Maybe that was the ruse that was that he, you know, they established that they were on the bed and then instead of course of following through with it, he, he killed her that way. Because, uh, yeah, they said there's no signs of a struggle. They mentioned an ashtray was tipped over, but it looked like someone dumped it as opposed to uh, cigarettes being all over the place and and the ashtray being smashed. I don't think it was broken. It looked like someone did this to, to make it look like there was a bit of a sign of a struggle. Um, so there just wasn't enough mess to suggest that that uh, there was a there was a fight, or that uh, she had to um, that he that he chased around the apartment. Clearly, that didn't happen. Right, and there's another detail. So, okay, the ashtray detail is interesting because you first start thinking that this is something that happened during the actual murder, during the event that you know she died. But her uncle discovered her by going through the window, right? He went through the window. The door was locked. So he goes around up the fire escape through the window. She was a smoker. If she had smoked like in bed and, you know, the ashtray was right there, maybe as he was coming in, he's super distracted because there's a body under a sheet. You know, this this already doesn't look good. And no one has heard from Sheila in days. And the, the radio is playing very loudly on her alarm clock. So there's already something wrong. Maybe he just tipped that over. Didn't even realize he tipped it over from like a bedside table or something, uh, which then leads you to the door being locked. So how did the, did the, did the person who killer leave oh, through yeah. the window and lock the door or did they have her keys? And then there was that rumor about the keys being found across the street. Oh yeah. So he, he locked yeah. the door so that, uh, Nobody would be able to discover the body for a while. Maybe this guy was a transient, you know, he wanted enough time to get out of town. But here, yeah. so it's good. Yeah. Clear up the key thing, Tim, because I always yep. get confused on that. Sure. So this is another one of those details where there was, um, we, we got kind of 
I would say conflicting like openness from the investigators, the, the, the newer school uh, investigators um, like they, they were totally willing to share um, about the keys and, and sort of talk about it. Um, the original investigator, I think, I, I think this was a holdback originally, you know, but again, this, this murder is like 42 plus years old. Um, so at some point, some of those I, I think have to be let go. Um, so I, I'm on team new investigator just for the record. Um, but so as I understand it, uh, what Lance said is correct. The door was locked and Sheila's uncle had to come up through the fire escape. Um, and the door was, was likely locked by the killer unless the killer killed, killed Sheila and went out the window down the fire escape. The mm. killer took her keys oh and went out the door and then locked it behind him. Um, and then apparently threw the keys or dropped them across the street. And they were found um, months later, actually, after the winter. So sometime, I think it was like in March uh, that that they found the keys. And they they had canvassed the neighborhood previously in November and December uh, in searching for clues, did not find the keys. Um, and I don't think they were like hidden all that well. They weren't like, you know, like, uh, like in a bush, you know, I think they were really like on, like on the grass on the sidewalk, you know, like not that. And yeah. I think, I think the previous, uh, e either they weren't there during the previous canvas or it, they were just like in the snow and were not found is, is how, how I gathered that information. Well, we also saw, was it a bus stop? Was there like a little bus stand right there? I'm pretty sure. Yeah. There was definitely a bus uh, going on church street there. Yeah. Yeah. And we saw the news footage, right, of the body being covered, like coming out. And didn't we see people like at that area in the background next to that little bus stand from that news sure. footage? Yeah, I'm not either, sure. I have to look back. Either way, that news footage, it doesn't seem like there's a ton of snow there. Right. Yeah. I think we actually got some conflicting uh, information there too um, from the folks who remembered it back then. Um, so if there was snow, there was just a little bit at that time. Um, but yeah, it could have it could have uh, hurt the search afterwards. I, I don't know when it snowed again, um, but I do know that it was Thanksgiving weekend uh, that, you know, that that following Thursday was Thanksgiving. So I think they had the investigators had a tough time uh getting in touch with certain people um because you know some travel and and things like that uh, during thanksgiving well you know i mean I, I think probably the smartest serial killers probably do most of their killing in the winter uh because in the summer things you know bodies <laughs> they don't keep so well so and you can hide evidence in the snow and all that so again this is this is a guy who must have planned this ahead for a long time so what does it tell you that the keys are across the street that he leaves the building and then throws them across the street? Yeah. I'm thinking, yeah, he must've, uh, yeah. Locked the door behind him. Um, so that somebody couldn't just go in there before, uh, you know, immediately it, that would have given him a few days to get out of town. And he just thought, well, just toss them into the snow there and they, they'll find them in the spring. Um, uh, which was pretty cavalier, uh, you know, considering everything he had done in terms of preparing for the crime, uh, it seemed like maybe it would have been a smarter thing to throw them in the garbage or something. Um, but whatever, uh, maybe he wanted that much of that much of it to be found out. I know because they like they like reading about their crimes. They like it when they get coverage 
And uh, some of them like to uh, throw the investigators a, a little bone, you know, and almost taunting them with these little details. Yeah, it kind of pisses me off. Does it upset you too? <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, you'd think the guy's just laughing about it like, oh, yeah, 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 you're never going to catch me. You know, I'm probably, well, my, my favorite uh, version of that was uh, going back to BTK, sending all these missives to the media. He could have gotten away with all those murders if he had just not sent out discs and letters and stuff. He'd probably still be going about his business right now. But they do like seeing the coverage. And I've read many uh, accounts of serial killers, you know, reading about the murders in the paper and commenting on them. And of course, you know, the people they're surrounded by, I mean, who would ever think that someone they're close to is a serial killer, right? It's just, it's just, it's that complacency we like to live with. You know, we think of that kind of thing happening to other people and, uh, so, yeah, most people, it just doesn't occur to them in, in a million years that that could happen, that someone they know could be responsible for something like that. Yeah, I just keep like going back to how much time we think that because Tim says this uh, when he starts talking about Sheila Shepard and, and theorizing is that we know that the killer spent time with her body. But we don't we don't know how much time he spent with her body, but he spent enough time with her body to put a knife in her stomach after she died to cover her up to what we think is possible. Fold the clothes, uh, take the pictures, not 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 take pictures of her. I mean, steal the pictures, like take the possess the pictures that she had. That's just a theory. But then it's come now. Now it's time to make the decision. How am I getting out of here? Can I go to the window that's like right there and go down the fire escape? Is that less obvious and conspicuous as opposed to going out the front door, her apartment door, locking it from the outside, having the keys so he knew where to pick up the keys and then risking somebody seeing him coming out of her apartment? But someone could see him go down the fire escape and that would register. So I'm sure he's thinking of these things, right? So either way, he takes the keys. So I guess yeah. it, whatever decision he made, whether it was the door unlocking it or the fire escape and going down, it's dark out. He still decides to leave them right next to the house. It's yeah. across the street, but it's buying him a little time. Why wouldn't he just keep them at, like keep them? Well, I mean, if it was that time of night and I saw someone climbing out of someone's window onto the fire escape and I was a tenant. I would definitely think something's something's up, something's wrong. I mean, if it's if this someone is if they're if they're a welcome house guest, I mean, obviously they're going to leave through the door. So I think he walked out the door and locked it. And uh, again, he wanted, and he put the sheet over her maybe to prevent, uh, you know, the 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 smell that comes from a a body that's decomposing. And he wanted to give himself time to to get out of dodge. New England is known for its charming towns, comforting foods, and of course its historical contributions, but the Down East region can have a dark side. I'm investigative journalist Kylie Lowe, and on my weekly podcast, Dark Down East, I dig into both decades-old and modern-day cases from my home state of Maine and the greater New England area. 
In each episode of Dark Down East, I seek insight from law enforcement officials, family members, and other loved ones who are both deeply familiar with the cases and the individuals at the heart of them. Join me as I unveil intricacies of these stories that are often overlooked, honor the grit of those searching for justice, and shine a light on cases that you aren't hearing on other podcasts. Listen to Dark Down East now, wherever you're listening. Kickoff for Super Bowl 34. The Titans-Rams 2000 Super Bowl, an instant classic. Hours after the game, two men were stabbed in the street, accused of being in the middle, the greatest linebacker in NFL history. Ray Lewis and two friends are charged with murder. The nation's eyes were glued to their televisions. The trial concluded and the verdicts came back, not guilty. What you can learn from all this is that big cases make for big mistakes. Look what happened in O.J. Simpson and look what happened in Ray Lewis. Lewis went on to have a Hall of Fame career, but questions around that night in Atlanta still remain. So what do you think they're hiding? They know what happened. They know exactly what happened. After 20 years, it's time to get to the bottom line truth. From Tenderfoot TV, I'm Tim Livingston, and this is The Raven. Listen for free on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. For ad-free listening and early access, subscribe to Tenderfoot Plus on tenderfootplus.com. Listen to the 48 Hours podcast for shocking murder cases and compelling real-life dramas from one of television's most watched true crime shows. Go behind the scenes of each episode with award-winning CBS News correspondents and producers in Postmortem, a weekly deep dive. Listen to 48 Hours wherever you get your podcasts. So, yeah, again, because so many serial killers are drifters because that's the pattern I've noticed about these people. Um, They never seem to hold down jobs for very long. A lot of them drop out of school. They move from town to town. Even when they're not killing people, there seems to be something that a lot of them struggle with in terms of uh, permanency, uh, sticking with things, uh, putting down roots. I've noticed that about a lot of them. What about patterns? Because there were no similar murders in that area around that time that represented or were, uh, right? Yeah, nothing with post-mortem injuries like Sheila suffered. And, you know, this is just me putting on my profiler hat, but I I would, uh, (laughs) um, you know, if that's such a, a, like a rare occurrence, like uh, spending that much time with the, I would say at least a half an hour, the killer spent with, with Sheila, you know, so spending time like that afterwards. um, Yeah. There's no other reports like that, like, like uh, post-mortem injuries, things like that uh, in the area or, or too many that I found at all. Yeah. He probably saw that as like an insurance policy. Like what if she comes to, you know, what if she, starts breathing again so maybe he just did it just ensure that she stayed dead what why not the heart yeah that's a good question too he where did he stab her again right in the stomach right like a couple inches below her navel with her own kitchen knife it was still in her yeah yeah her navel that's interesting that's when you because that's right you know in the reproductive system in the womb Mm -hmm. 
So yeah, that's interesting that he chose that part of her body. And she had a, a kid. She had a young child. Yeah, uh, yeah. Um, you know who who uh, was who she shared with her ex husband or husband at the time. Um, she wasn't living with Sheila, uh, the child. So, but but yeah, I mean, I think that is one detail that led some people to look at Richard, her her ex, for sure. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, but yeah, it must have been the murderer had mommy issues or something. Right. It's kind of a symbol. Yeah, it's kind of symbolic, you know. Um, but yeah, you're right. I mean, normally I think if a killer was going to stab, well, I've not most serial killers who use knives, they tend to inflict quite a lot of cuts, like in some cases, head to toe, uh, or like several of them they they stab in a frenzy but this was just one cut this was like strategic so he so yeah maybe it was more of a practical decision than anything else maybe all right to throw off the investigation maybe yeah yeah one thing that we had have learned a little bit about recently and i'd love to run this by you morgan and your listeners um but uh the dark world of death fetish has uh, sort of come across our desk uh, recently. And the idea that the killer spent time with Sheila afterwards, um, tied her up, and even the this uh, stab in the stomach is apparently a thing in the death fetish community um, where, where that, like, for example, had the killer taken photos or video of Sheila afterwards, I think that would apparently uh, have some value in that online community. Yeah. I mean, well, considering that it happened back in 1980, I think it was. um, Yeah. It was probably harder to traffic those images. Um, So maybe he just did it for himself, but yeah, uh, certainly that's, that's been around for a long time. I actually did an interview with a necrophiliac once. I don't know how legit it is, how legit this guy is. I don't know if he was taking me for a ride or not. He said he had never actually engaged in necrophilia, but it is a fetish. Um, they find, you know, they find skulls, attractive bones. They're turned on by that. Um, so, and a lot of them get into role play where someone may uh, get made up with, you know, with pale makeup to look like they have a pallor and they lay still and the other person relates to them as if they were a corpse but but obviously this guy went for reality in his case but yeah there's a whole there is a whole subculture when it comes to that that's for sure yeah we've just just learned about this and uh you know w- while we were kind of delving into sheila's case again and um yeah just made us look at the case in a different way Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, these, the thing about psychopaths is they have a way of objectifying people. And when, and if they do commit murder, it, a lot, a big part of it is objectification, uh, making, taking someone who's alive, who has the ability to, to reject you, to put you down or to fight you off and then making them into something that is inert, that cannot fight back. And they become an object, one that you can do whatever you want with, one that you have power over. That that was part of the the Unsolved Mysteries Diabolical Minds things. They were talking to some uh, professors. And that's what it's all about. I mean, Jeffrey Dahmer said it was all about wanting to own these bodies. He didn't want them to leave him. 
What were you saying about the necrophiliac who he, wanted, like, would have someone lay there? Um, yeah. So, well, as in terms of having someone lay there, he didn't. He didn't say that, but I know that's part of the role play of necrophilia, where I mean, the person's obviously not dead, but they can maybe put on some makeup to look like they're pale, and the and the person who the necrophiliac will then you know have sex with them and the other person's completely inert and uh, stiff and unmoving and so yeah that's that's and i think there you know there is a genre of pornography that involves this fake necrophilia and uh, and again i think they a lot of them have collections of of bones of skeletons i mean you you can buy real bones online it's hugely expensive it's like thousands of dollars for a skull. I looked into it. I'm not a necrophiliac, but I was but I was uh, interested in knowing like, can you actually buy bones? And it turns out you can, just like how you can buy organs. But, uh, where, uh, like where do you get that on the on the dark web or on Amazon? What, <laughs> oh no, these, these were, no these were mainstream. I mean, because ultimately, you know, scientific researchers have access to real bones. So I mean, you can buy them. It's just I guess. Maybe most people would be too afraid of what other people would think about it. If you've got real bones in your house, uh, human bones. Um, but yeah, you could you could you could buy a real human skeleton, but it'll set you back a lot. It's thousands of dollars. Wow. Have you ever come across a a thing? Have you ever come across a Mickey Mouse watch being a thing in like necrophilia? A Mickey Mouse watch. I don't know. Oh, you mean like where they've got like that one thing on their body? Yeah. Otherwise dead. I don't know. I mean, I think usually they're just nude or maybe they strip them. I don't know which, but uh, yeah, just trying yeah. to find out if that's like a thing. We had an interview with uh, LaDonna Humphrey and um, her, 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 her partner in uh, podcasting and also a co-author of this book strangled and um, Alicia Lockhart and there's this weird connection, this really crazy, wild connection. But Alicia responded to an ad to be this guy's uh, like secretary, I guess. And and she learned that he was a producer. And then she was like, I think he does clown porn because there was like, that's what was going on when I, I went to my interview. And then it turns out that he was taking requests from uh, clients, quote, clients to do these like death fetish videos. And it was very important to this one client that she wore this Mickey Mouse watch. And the Mickey Mouse watch was like the star of the show. Like he needed to pan, like zoom in on it, these slow pans of her arm down to the watch. And he's talking about it saying like, look at this Mickey Mouse watch, like all passionate. And the reason why she got connected with LaDonna Humphrey is because LaDonna Humphrey is investigating. She's a licensed private investigator. She's investigating the murder of uh, Melissa Witt who had a Mickey Mouse watch as well. And Melissa Trotter, who is a very similar murder case, also had a Mickey Mouse watch. Yeah, mm. both of them. Apparently a very similar watch. And um, Melissa Witt's watch was taken from her <clears throat> when she was murdered. So it, I think it's theorized that the killer took that watch. So it sort of became uh, the question of, um, you know, well, who was this client? Who was this producer? And could there be any connection between those two murders? Yeah, it's interesting. I think it tends to dovetail with the goth subculture. 
the whole thing with pale skin and you know black clothing and having being obsessed with death and uh, cemeteries and dead bodies so I think it, t it tends to me probably be more associated with that probably not a lot of uh, Mickey Mouse watches but uh, yeah that that would be a, an interesting addition I remember the comedian Sam Kinison talking about this story I think it emerged in the late 80s these people approached a funeral home and said we'll pay you to let us have sex with the corpses so they're they're around i mean uh, i mean i will you know what i've i've decided if someone wanted to have sex with my dead body i would say give me the money now we'll sign contracts and after i die go to it i mean you know, they, they're gonna dead, kill you they're gonna kill you oh no, oh no they don't get to kill me no that's not well you. they're just gonna break the rules but you've opened yeah, the door okay. to that yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah it has to be legal there has to be like a witness maybe a notary public or something like that come on how much I, money are you gonna, are you gonna <laughs> sell this for <laughs> i'm thinking enough to pay for my funeral like i think <laughs> at least that much. aim yeah. higher morgan well okay i think an average funeral costs like ten thousand dollars now um so maybe like 50 grand and you know if i'm dead you know, how's it going to affect me? Right. So. Yeah. I mean, I see your point there. Yeah. So yeah. how would that, how would that pay for your funeral? Who would do that? Who would do that? Trans? Would you, Oh, would you just pre arrange your funeral yourself? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Oh. Pre arrange the funeral, choose the funeral home and everything, the plot. And then, so first it has to cover the, those practical costs. And then there's like profit coming from it too. And I could do it with more than one person, you know? oh there you go oh, this so. is an industry yeah put, then, put me in put me in like a, a you know container of formaldehyde between encounters you know so shit. i don't deteriorate too quickly you know this is a this is a great business model yeah i, I feel yeah. like you're setting up conflict though for uh for these people who uh who buy your body services after you, you die they're gonna they're gonna fight over you well i mean if only one person wants ownership they have to pay more money than maybe like a hundred grand <laughs> it's more for exclusivity yeah i mean but i guess ultimately it would be illegal even if you do give your consent because by the law it's considered to be an indignity to a body even if you are giving permission so well right I feel like this is, I feel like there's a movie here, like Weekend at Bernie's meets Indecent <laughs> yeah. Proposal or something. Well, you know, there, there was actually a Canadian independent film. It's called uh, Kissed, and uh, it's about a female necrophiliac. And um, it ends with her boyfriend willingly dying so that she can make love to his corpse. It was a very sensitive and spiritual portrayal of necrophilia. But I, I was kind of dissatisfied because I just don't imagine it's quite uh, quite so tasteful in real life. So I, I think it's probably a lot more pornographic or, you know. I think, uh, I think that's probably the case, yeah. It's probably the most I've ever thought of it, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. There was, there was a woman like many years ago, I think it was in the 80s. Her surname may have been something like Greenlee, but she was open about being ne a necrophiliac she had never actually engaged in it but she would talk about it openly so you know these people surface every now and then and if you go online i'm sure you can find anonymous confessions of people saying they'd like to do it 
because the guy I interviewed, he was he preferred to stay anonymous. So all of his yeah. answers were generated through like AI voice and yeah. Well, he, oh, he talked really? about well, he talked about finding like dead animals and admiring the way they look. He didn't have sex with the animals, but that kind of awoke the uh, the fascination with dead creatures and dead entities and right. How did was... you get connected with this guy? Um, God, I don't remember. I think maybe he, maybe, I think maybe he contacted me because, you know, with this podcast, there has been some mention of necrophilia from time to time. Um, and then maybe I might, I used to do a segment called true crime news and it, and I think maybe I might've um, invited someone to contact me about that. So maybe that's how it came about. But uh, it's an interesting episode, that's for sure. Yeah, I'll send you a link uh, to yeah. that. If you want. Yeah. yeah, please. I'll have to check that out. <laughs> I'm just nervous I'll listen to it and then I'll see Roadkill and all of a sudden start being in, like realizing I'm attracted to it. <laughs> well, I think interested or curious in in a dead body, uh, curiosity in in that it does not make you attracted to it. I would say, you know, I think you know we spoke with a biologist uh, recently, Lance, who who you know she writes for National Geographic. She's very curious about dead bodies. I you know she's not does not strike me as uh, any kind of uh, necrophiliac or someone who has problems. Uh, you know, with <laughs> that would that. be amazing if she was. Yeah, there's but, a yeah, I think it's kind of normal to be honest to be interested in it, but attracted, not normal. Well, I mean, as a kid, if I ever saw a dead animal, I would definitely stop and stare at it. I'd be fascinated because it just wasn't something you saw every day. There's a great line in the David Cronenberg movie, uh, Dead Ringers. Have you seen that one? Yeah, one of them says, uh, there should be beauty contests for the insides of bodies, like greatest spleen you know <laughs> yeah i think yeah. that every time i nail a dog to a tree yeah oh my just god. kidding oh my god well, terrible. When, ha when halloween rolls around i'm always seeing you know home decor ideas i i mean i like skulls not in a sexual way but i find them aesthetically pleasing and other things related to uh to death and skulls i mean given the podcast i've been producing i guess that would only come natural but uh and i have one of those uh crystal head vodka bottles that that was really those are really cool mm -hmm. but i was disappointed because right. you can't light a candle in it because it doesn't admit enough air so it just goes out oh we're gonna get dan Aykroyd on the phone about that yeah yeah <laughs> um morgan i want to ask you a question yeah. uh what what makes you sh so sure that Sheila's killer is a serial killer. Um, well, he might not be, but uh, there are just, it seems like there, are, there were signature moves involved here. Like the, the knife after she died, um, taking so much care. Like this is clearly something that, he, that was well thought out over a long period of time. Um, and I think if, if you would give yourself that much preparation if it's if it and this is not a guy who lacks impulse control this is not a guy who lacks impulse control clearly he's very you know as it mentions he was very methodical and uh most of the serial, serial killers are like that 
They're not, as I mentioned, you know, I mentioned gang bangers who have no impulse control. They'll shoot somebody out in front of McDonald's. The, these guys, they have it all thought out. And um, I mean, these days more than ever, I mean, the, the FBI says, I think there's, there must be like hundreds of active serial killers at any given time. They're just getting better and better at it. Um, and there wasn't nearly as much literature about it back then. But this guy thought he just thought it through very well. Um, you know, and this, the unfortunate thing about, uh, about cold cases is that it's like telling a story backwards. You're starting. So the finding the body, that's the last page but you have to write the story going backwards. And how can you do that? And people can be hard on police saying you're not doing enough or why, why haven't you done this or that? But it's sometimes it's just very hard for them when they have nothing, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I, I definitely, in Sheila's case, I definitely don't think it's from lack of trying or, or wanting to find uh, the killer. Um, you know, I think, I think it's hard. I think this is a really bizarre case and uh, being a detective is, or an investigator is, uh, is not easy. Oh yeah. Police work is, is really tough at that level. You know, when you're, when you're investigating cases like that and um, sometimes they get, you know, it's, it seems to depend a lot on luck. Actually there, there are sometimes they catch someone red handed that uh, there are murderers who actually confess in the police station. And then you have something like this where, in some cases, they don't find uh, any valuable leads until like 50 years later, and sometimes never. So it really actually depends quite a bit on luck. Well, yeah. I mean, I had, I had I came up with this idea, but maybe it infringes on people's personal liberties. But I thought, what if everyone's DNA and everyone in their life gives like blood samples for medical purposes? What if it was legally mandated that that was submitted to law enforcement because in that way they could they could uh, solve cold, cold cases but on the other hand maybe that's do you think that'd be too much of an infringement on people's freedom their privacy having it be mandatory yeah like you know you've you know we've all given like blood samples when we had health health problems what if the government could uh, take all that dna and then Law enforcement could go back and look at cold cases and find out uh, who committed the crimes based on all this, you know, the huge DNA data bank. Yeah, I mean, from our privileged position of being, you know, middle aged white guys with no criminal background, I'd be fine with it. But I just see too many opportunities for corruption and Hey, if you want this person to go away, you can certainly shift something here and something there to make it look like they did something. We see that without any sort yeah. of DNA yeah. uh, tampering or, or you know, lack of evidence or, or you know, manipulation of evidence. Yeah. yeah, there, yeah, there would, there could be corruption where they just lie about it and produce yeah. some, you know, some file that, of, that containing someone's DNA when it's not, in fact the person who's guilty of the crime but the people That's... people who people who do go to prison as innocent uh you know innocent i mean that would at least help them to get out of prison so that would be a good thing like the west memphis three i mean there mm -hmm. was so little evidence and yet they were all sentenced to death you know so right 
Yeah, I think uh, human error as well. Um, even just natural human error is a would be a big problem there. Filing everybody's DNA in the right box uh, could, you know, <laughs> point uh, to um percent of those if those are errors uh you know that that's a huge problem and then of course abuse of power is is definitely uh could be a problem but i mean authorum and there are databases like like gemmatch and dna solves that are doing that if you want your dna in a database that can be cross-referenced by law enforcement you can do it right now you can submit it today oh yeah so, yeah well I, yeah. i've given mine to ancestry so maybe they could find it that way. I don't know if I don't know if they can subpoena ancestry, but or twenty three and me, but maybe. Yeah. yeah, I'm not sure. I know um Othram's Othram's database is DNA solved. So they definitely urge everyone who has a, a DNA profile to upload there. Um and then I know Jed Match has an option where you can check a box to uh submit it to be reviewed by law enforcement if uh you know they they want to or whatever well i mean you know and it's also a problem that you know sometimes murderers have no record they have no criminal record so their fingerprints are not on file and there are murderers who who only kill one time that's another complicating factor as well maybe he never killed again um and so you know there are lots of murderers also who have the same who kind of have overlapping patterns as well. So they can, sometimes they're confused with one another, you know, like there are more than one necrophiliac. And so there, there has to have been other murderers who killed in that fashion, uh, going for strangulation instead of just a gunshot or stab wound, you know, doing that dirty work post-mortem. So not a lot of original serial killers. Right. <laughs> All right. So, do you guys think uh, they'll ever solve this crime? I, I'm not. I'm not very optimistic about it. I think. I think they probably exhausted all the resources. The only way at this point would be if somebody happens to know the murderer, and they've talked about doing it. But again, I think this guy is probably he's too smart and too secretive to ever do something as stupid to actually admit it to anyone, not even his best friend. Unless they have some DNA that's sitting there waiting on the, uh, waiting to be analyzed. Maybe that'll, maybe that'll happen. Maybe they can get connected with Othram and there'll be some sort of answer there. But even if DNA, hypothetically speaking, if they analyze this DNA, I don't know what it's on. So is it on something that would even indicate that this person killed her, you know, because if it's her husband's DNA somewhere in the apartment, well, that doesn't answer that and answer it at all. Like, of course, his DNA is probably in the apartment. Well, yeah, yeah. no, it's if I were to, if I were to, like, write a book as you know, an advice book to serial killers on how to get away with murder, I would say, make sure you don't run afoul of the law afterwards, because they're going to have to get your fingerprints, even if it's a completely unrelated charge, you better stay out of trouble because they'll figure it out eventually. Right. But that's the thing, isn't it? Those <laughs> cool down crimes. Oh yeah. After yeah. the fact. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, a lot of, a lot of serial killers have also committed other kinds of crimes because it's just in a criminal's nature to break the rules. And so, you know, they, they can get involved with theft or 
traffic offenses, all kinds of things. But maybe, maybe not. You know, Dennis Rader was not a criminal in any other way besides murder. So he was a law-abiding person otherwise. So there are exceptions. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I hope, I hope this case will get solved. Uh, I don't know how it will. Um, you know, I, it's been over 42 years. So, uh, yeah, I guess if, if there was some fingerprint that would do it, it probably would have happened by now. Um, so I don't know, maybe, maybe there'll be a death kit, deathbed confession, or I know, I mean, we do learn that relationships change when people die and maybe some information will get shared then. Um, but you know, you really want to see justice for Sheila at this oh, yeah. point. Yeah. Yeah. Do you know uh, how her family is taking it? They must've been, are they still, are they involved with trying to solve the crime at all? I mean, the only person we've directly spoken with was Terry is Terry, her aunt. So, and it's really devastated them. I yeah. mean, devastated them yeah oh yeah for sure yeah Mm -hmm. yeah that's that's and you know they often not only does the the death of their loved one leave a void but also the fact that if the perpetrator has never been brought to justice that's another aspect of their life where there's there's a lack of completion knowing someone got away with it that's something that's hard to live with as well yeah yeah i can see that yeah, it's not fair. I mean, you know, unfortunately, no one ever said life was fair, but this feels like it's just a miscarriage of of justice. You know, this young woman did not deserve this. Uh, she had a young child, um, you know, who now grows up without a mother. Um, so, yeah, it's just tragic. Well, you know, we sh- I guess we shouldn't say, you know, they that there's never going to be a, a solution to this because in watching those episodes of unsolved mystery sometimes they found this the perpetrator like 30 40 years after the crime was committed it does happen um so yeah we you know you never know right yeah gotta hold out hope i think yeah yeah we do have a 330 thing that we should probably shuffle off oh yeah yeah no problem yeah well thank you guys for speaking with me on this case today yeah and, uh, thank you I'll send you, I'll send you that necrophilia interview and uh <laughs> all right yeah wish i could good. say i'm looking forward to it 